What we want to do this morning is to connect some dots. I think biblical wisdom involves being able to take truths and to take events and to not view them in isolation from one another, but to see how they work with one another. On these past weeks, we talked about the events leading up to Easter, and then, of course, last Sunday, the resurrection itself. What I'd like to do with you in these few minutes together now is to do a little post-Easter study together. And for that, we're going to find our way to the book of Acts. This is the second of Luke's writings. Luke was a physician. And so if you would turn to that fifth book of your New Testament, the book of Acts, and you and I are going to find here that there is going to be some overlap where Luke is going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he is going to help us to make a connection to the ascension of Jesus Christ. We want to do that this morning as well. We're going to develop some connectors and to see how not only these significant events connect with one another, but how they connect with you and me in 2014 living. So I'd like to begin reading in verse 1. We'll take it down through verse 11. And here Luke, the physician, writes these words. Now in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing at heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? And this Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So now what we're going to be doing, of course, is connecting dots, because what we want to be able to see is not only how the resurrection relates to the ascension, but how the ascension also relates to the second coming of Jesus Christ as spoken of in that last verse, and how this relates to the here and now in which we are living our lives practically on a daily basis. So a lot to think about in a short time together. Let's look to God in prayer. Father, what we want to do is to expose our minds and our hearts to your truth. It's all true. 
It's solid, it's not flexible. It's firm and it's stable. It's foundational to the way in which we live our lives. So we want to absorb your word while cultivating in our spirit a sense of wonder of who you are. As we bask in the glow of resurrection, we want to be able to see how it relates to ascension, how it relates to Jesus' return, and how all this connects to 2014. So no matter what the issues are right now that we're facing this morning, Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. So again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. We pray this again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Bill Moyes tells an interesting story the Apollo 17 and its ascent into orbit in 1975. I was an obscure yet present observer at the launch of Apollo 17. It was a night launch, and there were hundreds of cynical reporters all over the lawn, drinking, joking, waiting for this 35-story high rocket to launch. The countdown came, and then the first thing you see is this extraordinary orange light, which is just at the limit of what you can bear to look at. Everything is illuminated with light. Then comes this thing slowly rising up in total silence because it takes a few seconds for the sound to come swishing across. It seems to just penetrate you. You can practically hear jaws dropping. The sense of wonder fills everyone in the whole place as this thing ascends. The first stage ignites this beautiful blue flame. It becomes like a star, but you realize there are humans on it. And then, total silence. People just get up quietly. helping each other up. All of a sudden, they're kind. They're different. They're opening doors. They're looking at one another. It's as if this sense of wonder has transformed our experience due to this dramatic ascent into the heavens. And when I encountered Moyer's writings, I thought of this passage. 
Because the disciples now are in the midst of a transformational experience. Where an ascent is about to take place, divinely orchestrated. And this ascent is going to connect. Connect with resurrection. Connect with return. Connect with us. I want to draw three connectors from this passage in our minutes together that I think are going to have some practical applications to the way in which we go about facing life. The first is found in verse 1 down through verse 4 slash verse 5. We're going to phrase it like this, that as we connect Christ's resurrection with his, with his ascension, I want you to notice first of all with me, the proofs that Christ has established. And you say, well, Gary, these proofs, where are they? Well, we'll get to them in a second in verse 3. But notice with me that Luke, the doctor, informs us in the first book, O Theophilus, and the first book was the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And he says, O Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was typically a name among those who were in positions of authority in the Roman Empire. In fact, his name means literally friend of God. Now, the Roman Empire had been evidently put on alert in that local region because one who had been proclaimed king of the Jews and had been sentenced as an insurrectionist against Caesar has evidently been described as having risen from the dead. So now Theophilus, a representative of the Roman government, is going to be processing this information. You and I, likewise, have got to be processing, thinking, connecting, relating this practically to everyday living. Theophilus has to, so do we. So now Luke then says, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And you say, well, Gary... On that cross, many times you have reminded us that Jesus said, it is finished, tetelestai, it is done. But here, Luke informs us that Jesus, well, it's what he began to do. Is that a contradiction? It's a good question. Glad you asked Well, what we have to bear in mind is that the word done pertains to Christ's redemptive work. It is final. What Luke is describing is Christ's high priestly work. It is continual. Christ's redemptive work was earthly, final. Christ's high priestly work is continual. Heavenly. So now, what we find is a connection occurring between the earthly and the heavenly, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Interesting phrase. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, but now basking in the glow of resurrection power, In verse 3, you and I are told he presented himself. 
Notice that he is proactive, Jesus is. He's getting himself out where he can be observed, analyzed. He is a resurrected one. And so he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Mark that phrase, many proofs. It's a medical term. Caught my attention right away. And I began to ask myself the question that Luke, who's a doctor, a physician, would use a medical term, many proofs. Why did he do this? And furthermore, why did he not use the word that John so often spoke of, signs? Signs is a medical term as well. In fact, you might remember when you have been reading in, say, the book of John, that in the setting of Cana of Galilee, Jesus turned water into wine, and John tells us in verse 11 that this was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. So now here is Luke, and he doesn't use the word signs. He uses the word here for infallible proofs. What's the difference? Both were medical words. Let's say that you are going to your physician, and there's been something wrong physically, and you've got to get checked out. And so you've set up the appointment, you arrive on the scene, and finally your physician or your PA comes into the room, nurse, and you begin to describe your symptoms. They listen, they observe, they evaluate. This is in keeping with John's word. Say, Maya, signs. It's discerning symptoms through observation. But Luke uses a different word, infallible proofs. Let's say at this point, uh, your medical personnel decide that you have got to go down to the lab or you've got to go in to get an x-ray. So you move to various parts of your clinic where further evaluation takes place. What they are doing at this place is that they are moving beyond signs, symptoms. What they want are proofs based upon tests. Now, what Luke is doing at this point is that he is saying that on the basis of resurrection, Jesus has so proactively presented himself, he is not merely allowing for them to ponder the symptoms of his claims that he's the Son of God. He's saying, Thomas, check out the nail prints. Peter. Let's have a fish dinner together. Watch me eat. I'm no phantom. I've got a body. I'm risen. What has taken place is that you have moved beyond the symptoms of claiming to be the Son of God to infallible proofs pertaining to the resurrected Son of God. And Jesus is saying, I can be tested. I can be tested. And the beauty of Christianity is that he allowed God, did people to go to that grave and examine the infallible proofs, examine the body of Jesus Christ, test the claims as 
it relates to this body, and come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, what Luke is doing at this point medically is presenting an argument spiritually for you and me to process together. So now for 2014 living, what you've got to be able to say, no matter if you're facing a difficult Monday and folding before your very eyes, your own medical challenges this week, or job-related, or whatever, or hopefully a moment where you're going to be sharing the gospel with somebody, you want to be able to move into that infallible proof lifestyle where you have this sense of the resurrected one having complete control and influence over your life. My mind went back to the scene in Blandon Churchyard in England where Winston Churchill is buried. There's this entrance, you see. And when people are bringing in the casket, the pastor steps out to kind of escort them into the church. But the weather's bad. There's shelter beneath the roof of the gate. But over the gate, Blandon, are these words. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Here's what fascinates us. You'll see these words. Not upon entering, but upon leaving. Can you imagine how those words minister to the hurting heart of loved ones who are walking away and they see everybody else in London just involved in the normal routines of life, oblivious to what they've just painfully experienced? Now, what Jesus is doing at this point is allowing for himself to be tested on the basis of infallible proofs so that you and I are able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives as you walk through that exit sign, so to speak, into the normal issues of life and face the challenges that come your way. So matter if it's a tough Monday or a tough Friday and everything in between, you are taking these infallible proofs and allowing them to bear upon your mind and upon your heart, no matter how difficult the issues are, I know my Redeemer lives. And so he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while they were staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promises of the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, that was preparatory, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking of Pentecost, not many days from now. Now what you've done at this point then is you've connected resurrection and ascension through infallible proofs 
that this was not merely a spiritual ascension, this was a bodily, this was a physical ascension, but you're still going to have to be able to answer that basic question of, so what? What difference does it make? But let's keep going. So now you get to verse 6, we'll say 5 slash 6 down to verse 8. They kind of tie together because here's our second connector, that as we connect Christ's resurrection with his ascension, notice also with me the provision that Christ has made. And that provision, of course, is the Holy Spirit. So now you and I are told, when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You can see what's on their minds. Because they had dueled in previous days, didn't they, as to who was going to sit to his left, who was going to sit to his right, uh, as Jesus reigned on his throne. And they're still pondering, king of the Jews, written over that cross, and now they've got these infallible proofs that he is truly the king, and so now they want to talk about the kingdom. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But they're very time conscious, like you and I are. And so look at what he says in answer to that, verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father, not us, has fixed, literally has fully established on the basis of his calendar, not ours. That's the word picture behind fixed. His calendar, by his own authority, not ours. I remember years ago, I had just gotten done with one of my radio programs, and I had gone back to my office, and there was this woman who stopped me as I was heading down the elevator. This was back in Pittsburgh. And as I was about to get in my car, she looked at me and she said, in light of all that's happening in the world right now, do you think the end is at hand? And my mind was on this, this verse here. I said, well, I tell you what. Uh, my gut feeling is that we're one day closer than we were yesterday. Which, don't you, I, I think that's in keeping with what the doctor has said here, quoting Jesus. That Jesus had said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father as fixed by his own authority. But Jesus is not going to let that question rest because he's got something more to say here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And they're saying to themselves, well, we asked a question about time. And he's talking about power. Jesus said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father, not even the Son, has fixed by his own authority. Now, you may be looking at what's happening in the world right now, and you are saying, well, Father, where does all this fit into the big scheme of things time-wise? And my mind goes back to a story that I read from... 
Dennis Rainey sent this book to me years ago. Three-year-old William ventured out into the pier of their vacation home to get a closer look at the ski boat docked at the end of the pier. Mustering all the courage that he could, he stuck one foot on the edge of the boat in an effort to get into it. Now, with one foot on the pier and the other on the boat, the space between the boat and the pier began to widen, and you can almost see this thing unfolding. Freezing with fear, William's little legs could spread no farther, and he hit the water with a splash. And the splash alerted his dad, who dove in, was unsuccessful in spotting his son. On the second dive, he spotted William about four feet down, clinging in a bear hug fashion to one of the posts under the pier. He pried William's hands from the post, swam to the surface. William was okay. This is classic. When asked why he clung to the post, William replied, quote, I was just waiting for my father. Unquote. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Little William's probably saying to himself, how much longer before he dives in? Gets me. And likewise, there will be those who feel the same way about global matters. But Jesus has something to say to you and me in the midst of the global challenges, tensions, whether it be regionally or internationally, and it's this, but you will receive power. Now, the Greek word here for power is dunamis. We get the word dynamite. It is an explosive. But you will receive this explosive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit baptized you into the family of faith, and you have the Holy Spirit operative within you, you have this power available to you. And you will be my witnesses. The Greek word here is martus. We get the word martyr. Not sure how much we would like to hear him say, and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. But that is the word that is translated here for witness. Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And I was thinking about that when I was looking at the names of the doctors who just passed away in Afghanistan these past days. One in particular stands out. And this doctor has made numerous trips to minister to the needs, particularly the physical needs of children. And he was one of three who died. And he loved to talk about Jesus, you see. And they said that there was a certain strength about him whenever he would move into a room or a setting in which he would care for his patients. And when others talk about him, I get that sense now we're talking verse 8, don't you? There's this strength, there's this power about him as he moves into their presence. And likewise, when you on Monday morning 
or Friday night or whatever, are moving into the relationships that God has waiting for you, you are to bring this sense of dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking personality here. You could be reserved and yet have this dynamic about you. Where people find that there is something dynamic within you, which is the dunamis described pertaining to the workings of the Holy Spirit. And notice the flow, Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Sheboygan County would fit into the end of the earth because Jerusalem is in Israel. And so you see that movement outward from the starting point in which which they're being commissioned. But what stands out to me here is that there is this equipping of dunamis, power to execute this witnessing strategy. of of, of movement, of concentric circles, outward, 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 to impact others for Jesus. And I thought about that power that God gives us. Dr. John Stott, who was rector of All Souls Church in London, tremendous Bible teacher and expositor, evangelist, close, close friend of Billy Graham, tells of a story from 1958 when he was leading a university outreach in Sydney, Australia. And the day before the final meeting, he received word that his father had just passed away. In addition to his grief, he also started to lose his voice. Here's how Dr. Stott described that final day of the outreach. It was already late afternoon within a few hours of the final meeting. And I didn't feel I could back away at that time. I went to the great hall and asked a few students to gather around me. And I asked one of them, he was tied with inner velocity, to read, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Power, dunamis. A student read these verses, and then I asked them to lay hands on me and pray that those verses would be true to my own experience. When time came for me to speak, I spoke on the broad and narrow ways from Matthew chapter 7, and I had to get within half an inch of the microphone, and I croaked the gospel. I whispered. And I wondered, was anything heard, let alone accomplished? He's with the Lord. But he would later write, I've been back to Australia about ten times since 1958. And on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, Do you remember that final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? Well, they say, I was born again that night. Dr. Stott concludes, the Holy Spirit takes our our human weakness and frailty and he carries them home with power to the mind, the heart, the conscience, the will of the hearers in such a way that they see 
that they believe. You feeling weak this morning? Are you dependent upon the person within you who provides this dynamic when it seems as though you are so wearied by life? You see what he's done now? This doctor, he's wise. He's taking the proofs that Christ has established and connected them to the provision that Christ has made, but he's not going to end there. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Mark what comes next. A cloud took him out of their sight. Thirdly, As we connect Christ's resurrection with his ascension, notice with me the promise that Christ will fulfill. Now, I want you to connect with me. And in Luke chapter 9, there was a mount in which Peter, James, and John stood with Jesus and connect what was known as the Mount of Transfiguration, what is now occurring as it appears on the screen. As he was saying these things, what? A cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, if you are Peter, James, and John, not only are you involved in pondering this in light of preview leading to Christ's ascent, you are also given opportunity to consider review of what God has utilized through the use of the cloud in the Older Testament. Sometime when you're leading a Bible study in your neighborhood or for your family, do a study in what I call the cloud of grace. For example, in Exodus chapter 33, what you would find is that Moses, after having received the Ten Commandments, was positioned at the tabernacle entrance. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. When Solomon dedicated the temple, in 1 Kings chapter 8 and subsequent generations, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. But something happened. Israel rebelled against God. 
And that cloud of glory, that cloud of grace that had so overwhelmed the temple, we are told in Ezekiel chapter 10, began to move away from that temple. And as it moved away from that temple, it moved slowly, surely, dramatically, first from the Holy of Holies, then to the porch of the temple, then to the eastern gate, and finally, and mark this, listen to this, to the mountain east of the temple, which is the Mount of Olives, where the cloud ascended and left them. Where is Jesus as he is speaking these final words with his disciples? On the Mount of Olives as now a cloud envelops him, and now he is dramatically lifted from their presence. And so in verse 11, these angels are standing before them and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Pause. We read earlier that Luke had written in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That means he's doing something now in heaven. What does this tell you, that he ascended into heaven? It means, first of all, it's a real place. For you see, Jesus Christ has a glorified body. There are infallible proofs of a resurrected body. That means a resurrected body, a physical body, requires a physical place for that physical body. It affirms what Jesus said in John 14, verse 2 and 3, I go to prepare a place for you. Which means he is currently doing preparatory work for more of his people to come and join him. It affirms the idea of the sending of the Holy Spirit because in John chapter 16, verse 7, he informed these disciples that he had to go because upon going he would send another comforter. And that was the prerequisite for the Holy Spirit's coming. Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16 informs us that he is our high priest. He's doing intercessory work. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we're told that he is our advocate. He is doing advocacy. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we're informed that he has been seated at the right hand of the Father, which means that he has authority over all that is taking place. All of that is implicit in that statement then of Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven. But he does not leave us as orphans. He's given us the Holy Spirit. But look what comes next. We'll come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven Physically, visually, even geographically, because Zechariah chapter 14 
talks about that time of Armageddon, that on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And geophysicists inform us that there's a fissure line there at this moment. You see the connections that are being made? But what I want to do is to make one more connection in that if we take our first study prior to Easter, where we were looking in Revelation chapter 1 and link it to this, notice what Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 tells us as it appears on screen. And behold, he is coming with the what? Clouds. You have just followed the flow of grace in that cloud from Old Testament to New. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. For as Moyers writes, you can practically hear jaws drop. The sense of wonder fills everyone in the whole place. as we ponder this ascent. People just get up quietly. They start helping each other. Now they're kind. They open doors. They look at one another. There's a borderline sense of reverence. A sense of wonder at what has occurred. But that pales in significance to that future day. And this ascent is simply our way of connecting the past to the future and the return of our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. For we believe here this wonderful, wonderful church that true wisdom means making connections. Connecting dots. Connecting one truth with another, one event with another. Seeing how it fits and how it flows. So Father, I pray first of all for anybody who comes to one of these services today and came in spiritually inquisitive, but has not yet put faith and trust in Jesus. That now they will repent of sin and put faith and trust in Christ and Christ's work alone for their salvation. For all who know you, love you, live for you, born again. My prayer is that you will fill our our minds and our hearts, our souls, with a sense of wonder of what you've done, what you are doing, what you will do, and how you've connected these dots for us to be able to understand. For this, Father, we give you all the praise.
In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.